Hey y'all, welcome to RUF. Uh, it's good to be with y'all tonight. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. I've met you. I'd love to meet you at some point. Um, and I just want to say it's really good to be with y'all tonight because this is kind of my first day back with doing anything since we had our baby last Wednesday, which has been really fun. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, Peter is doing great, uh, and Katie is doing great, and we are living in kind of the new baby haze, and so <laughs> everything is so cloudy. <laughs> Uh, Katie is, uh, she's living on like, uh, like every two hours, every three hours feeding Peter, like all the time, 24 hours a day. So that's a lot. Um, it's a whole lot. (laughs) So she's a much stronger human being than I am, but I'm glad to be married to her. Uh, and I just want to say though, as we, as I talk about that though, that Jesus is really the head of RUF. Um, and as if I have to slip out some or not be as present on campus, um, you're still in good hands because you're in Jesus' hands. And so um, I just want to entrust you to that, um, to trust him with that, and to look to Jesus actually to kind of take us to these next few weeks because we only have, after this, two more RUFs uh, before the end of the year. So crazy. <laughs> no pressure, LDOC. <laughs> but it's coming up. Um, so we're uh, we're wrapping up this semester by going through the the book of Ephesians and kind of landing the plane on that. And here we are in chapter five and Paul is actually helping us understand what does it mean for us uh, if God has really done all the things that he says he's done through Jesus. If he's reconciled the world through Jesus, if he's reconciled us to God through Jesus, what does that mean for us now practically in our day-to-day life? So this is Paul in Ephesians five writing and explaining some of that. He says this, therefore, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who's covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Jesus, we do pray that you would be light and truth and life for us tonight. Jesus, that we would know ourselves in you and through you. We would know ourselves as you walk beside us in life and as you uphold us with your strong hand. Um, God, for those of us tonight who are just really hurt, um, are really depressed, or really lonely, we pray that you be our comfort and our friend. We pray that you would send us friends to know us and care for us and love us, and that through them that we would know your love and your care. And Lord, we pray for those tonight who don't know you but are here amongst us God, that they would hear good news, and there'd be good news of great joy, um, news enough to wake the dead. 
And Lord, for those of us here tonight, um, Lord, who are wrestling with sin, and that's all of us on some level, but who feel that really deeply and powerfully in a big way, God, we pray that you would free us, and you'd work in our lives um, through your word and through your spirit, that we would walk more faithfully and more truly in your, in your light and in your life. And God, that we would give all the glory to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Who are you? And how should you live? Those are big questions, aren't they? But they're questions that all of us are wrestling with all the time. There's a story of a, a girl and a guy they kind of been dating, see each other for a while. Uh, it wasn't like official official, but they were somewhat serious. And he was supposed to meet her at a party with her friends. And she goes with her friends and she's there for a while and she texts him. Hey, are you coming to the party? And he never responds. And so more time goes on. She calls him, and he doesn't answer his phone. And more time goes on, and finally she and her friends decide to leave, and they go go to Franklin Street, and they see him hanging out with his friends on Franklin Street. And he's like, hey, how's it going? And she, she's pretty mad at him. And he comes up to her and he's like, hey, what's wrong? What's going on? And she looks at him and says, like, what do you mean what's wrong? Like, I called you, I texted you, you're supposed to come to this party and meet me here, like, and you didn't show up? And he's like, well, 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 well look, 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 um, you know, I'm not like your boyfriend, and you're not my girlfriend. I mean, we're just kind of like talking, seeing each other, hanging out, whatever. And for like one second in that... She's like pretty mad at him. And then she kind of takes deep breath and thinks about it for a second and says, you know what? You're right. I am not your girlfriend. And you are not my boyfriend. And she walked away and she never had anything else to do with him, romantically speaking. Good for you, girl. (laughs) (laughs) But our roles that we take on in life are, shape our, who we are, right? And what we do. And some of that is girlfriend and boyfriend. Some of that is who you are in your family. Are you the oldest kid? Are you the youngest kid? Are you a son or a daughter? Um, are you friends with someone? Are you good friends with someone? Are you like really, really good friends with someone? Like, what is your role? And what that role is dictates how you are and how you live in the world. And that's for everything. Because there's a deep connection between who you are and what you do. And that's the same thing here as what Paul's talking about, that your actions and your identity are linked to Christ. A lot of times, though, I think we don't really know who we are. Not really. Or we feel really disconnected from who we are or who we think we are. I mean, we can know right up here, you know, I believe in Jesus and it, like what he says about me is true. But it feels so far right here, doesn't it? And when that happens, we can overcommit to things because we don't know who we are. We don't know what to do. And because we don't know what to do, we don't know what to say no to. And then on the other end, what to say yes to. And then we get exhausted and we feel like uh, we have to live at this competitive kind of go, go, go pace. And that can lead to maybe feeling more like you have a network than really deep friendships, right? Uh, when we don't know ourselves and who we are, we can feel out of touch with, with our identity. And it can lead to us feeling like we're a hypocrite. 
Because it's like, well, when I'm with these friends, I say these jokes and I tell these stories and I act this way. But then I go over here and I'm with these friends and I tell a totally different set of jokes. And I'm a totally different person. And I'm one person here and I'm one person over here and I don't really know who I am. It can lead to deep insecurity when you don't know your identity. Right? Because you're always wondering, what do people think of me? Who am I in their eyes? Am I funny enough? Am I smart enough? Am I hardworking enough? Am I successful enough? Do I come across as polished enough? Like, who am I? It's a massive question that we're dealing with all the time. And who we are shapes what we do. And some of this just comes with being kind of where we are in life, right? You're 19, 20, 22 years old. And it's hard to, say, to know what to say no to in order to say yes to the right things sometimes, right? And when that happens, of course, we feel busy and overwhelmed and morally frayed because we feel rootless. Because what we fl- do flows out of who we are. That's what Paul is talking about tonight. And he's urging us, as he talks about this, to look at Jesus. And to see, Jesus is the one who sets the pattern for our lives. And that's in big ways, like eternity. That's also in things that you probably don't think about. Like your speech, or your actions, and the things that you think about and feel. So Paul's approaching this letter, and he's asking us, Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? And so that's what I want to look at tonight. I want to look at this and just ask two questions of this text. Is who are we in Jesus? And then how should we live? Who are we in Jesus and how should we live? One, let's start off here. Who are we in Jesus? Look at what Paul describes Christians as. He calls them imitators of God. He says they're beloved children. He even goes so far as to call them light. And it's because of this that he says that we should walk in love. Do you hear that connection again between who you are and what you do? But he's not afraid to set that bar for what love is incredibly high. Like He calls us to walk in the same sort of love that Christ walked in when he gave his life up for us on a cross. Paul says that at the very end of this, he says something kind of strange, doesn't he too? That... Anything that becomes visible is light. Did you catch that? Isn't that a weird thing to say? How has anything that's visible become light? What does he mean by that? Think about it like this. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world, if you're my people. But then later in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And you can read that and think, well, which one is it? I mean... Jesus, are your people the light of the world, or are you the light of the world? And the answer is yes. It's both, right? Here's the principle for you. That you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. What you worship sets your identity. It sets who you are. That worship is not just about feeling kind of big highs when the crescendo of the music comes. And it's not just about sitting in prayer and feeling really close to God. That those things do happen. But worship is about putting your identity in something or someone outside of yourself. And having that thing or that person shape how you understand yourself. How you think about yourself. How you think about the world. That when you worship Jesus, you're putting your identity in Jesus. That he is the light of the world. And as you worship him, 
and encounter him as the light and meet the light. You abide in the light. You're shaped by the light. You're nourished by the light. You are encouraged by it, even ravished by the light. And what is done all those things by the light becomes like the light too. You take on the aspirations and the qualities and the desires of the light of Christ. That what is true of Jesus becomes true of you. And not only does the light of God expose, but it also transforms and shapes and comforts. Which means that the reality is that there has to be a difference between you and the rest of the world. That if your identity is in Jesus and you worship Jesus, that Jesus actually called you to live in attention with the rest of the world. That you're to enter into it, to be a part of it, to enjoy it, love it, deal with it, heal it. Try to give it the same thing that you've received from Christ, and yet not to be of it. To be different from it, to be set apart from it. To go against it in some very important ways. One of those ways that Paul puts his finger on here is he talks about sexual sin. which The Greek word that he actually uses here is called porneia. Uh, which is where we get our word for porn, or pornography. And the sexual sin that he's talking about here is more broad than what pornography is. It could be lust. It could be sex outside of marriage. And the reason he puts this here is this, is that sexual morality is not wrong because sex is wrong. God made sex, gave it as a gift to his people. If you turn just a few verses forward and later in Ephesians 5, around Ephesians 5.25, Paul says that sex is actually a picture of God's love for his people and the church. It's this incredibly intimate and beautiful thing he thinks is great. But do you know what makes sexual immorality so wrong Why Paul is using it here? Because it's the exact opposite of giving yourself up for someone like Christ has given himself up for us. That sexual immorality is about serving yourself and using someone in a really profound way. Love says, what can I do for you? Lust says, what can you do for me? I mean, think about pornography in this. I mean, we'd be a very unusual group of people if, you know, at least some of us weren't wrestling with pornography at this point. But in porn, someone puts themselves on display in an incredibly vulnerable way so that their vulnerability and their body and their own sexual brokenness can be consumed by anybody who has an internet connection. And so the person watching can make themselves feel good or feel loved or not feel anything for just a few moments because they're saying, what can you do for me? Or, you know, if porn isn't your thing, consider sex outside of the covenant of marriage, which is probably one of the least popular teachings the Bible has for us. But... <laughs> um, if you're here to actually know God and listen to some of what God has to say, you should listen to this as well. But when you're with someone and they're wanting to have sex with you outside of marriage, what they're saying essentially is, I don't want all of you, but what I want is the part of you that makes me feel good on my terms. And I could leave you after that happens. And once I've gotten that, I can kind of come and go on my terms, and it might get messy between us, but there's nothing binding me here to you because I'm not ready to give everything to you. And so I'm going to take first that, again, it's asking, what can you give to me? But God is love. 
And God gives the whole of himself away to his people. And so sexual morality is wrong because it takes instead of gives. And it does so with our bodies, our minds, the affections of our hearts. Greed and being covetous is the same. They both say, whatever I've got, it's never enough for me. It's never enough. I want more. They're saying what I worship, my idol, this thing that I need so badly is one where I take instead of I give. Because it's taking from me and doesn't give me the life that I need. I've got to pull it from somewhere else. But what Christ has done for his people is he said, I'm going to give my whole life to you. And it's going to be enough for you. And so you don't have to take from the world. You can actually give to the world. You can give to the people around you. I know this sounds so restricted to to some of us. Like in order for me to get what I need, don't I need to have the freedom to express my sexuality and get what I want out of sex in the ways that I want and feel like I need? Don't I need that freedom? The, The real freedom that God offers us, the real freedom the Bible presents to us is not the freedom to do whatever we want to do. Because then that's just kind of being a slave to our desires, right? Like, my, sometimes I want something, sometimes I don't want it. And it comes and it goes. Sometimes I want a person, sometimes I don't want a person. And it comes and it goes. But the real freedom the Bible offers you is the freedom to be who you truly are in Jesus. To say yes to some things and no to others. Because Christ was so free, they had all the power and all the beauty in the universe, instead of being a slave to those things and hoarding them for himself and using them for himself, he lets go of those things and he emptied himself of beauty and power for your sake so that you could have his beauty and so that you could have the power to actually say no to sin and you could live in his life. And if Jesus has done that for you, then it's the biggest, most truest thing about you. It's bigger than your life plan. It's bigger than your sexual desires. It's bigger than impressing your parents or your friends. Christ is everything. It's your identity. And so you can say yes to who you are to him and no to everything else. You know, um, I don't use a lot of uh, ancient church history stories. They, For some reason, they don't seem to connect with people. <laughs> it's weird, right? <laughs> but here's my exception to the rule. Uh a guy named Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say his name, uh, lived around 350, 400 A.D. He, his mom was a Christian. He did not start off in life as a Christian. And he's this brilliant guy. He's teaching some of the elites in the Roman uh, capitals of like Rome and Milan. And he is just brilliant philosopher kind of dude. But he's also, he has many lovers. He's having sex with lots of different people. And he's just kind of doing his own thing until he becomes a Christian a little bit later on. And he gives up teaching in order to become a a pastor and a bishop. And he gives up kind of uh, his sexual lifestyle. But one day he goes back to Milan, kind of the place where he'd been teaching for so long. And he's walking through the city square. And he sees one of his former lovers hanging out in the city square with some other people. And she raises her hand and waves at him and says, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. It's me, and he, he keeps walking. Doesn't acknowledge her at all. And she raises her hand again and says, Augustine, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And she's like waving at this point and you know, trying to get his attention and does not acknowledge her at all. Finally, she runs up to him, stands in front of him, and basically grabs him by a shirt and looks him in the eye and says, Augustine, it's me. Don't you remember me? 
And he looks at her and he says, I know it's you. But it's not me. He was different. And that's what God calls his people to as well. To look at these things that have entangled us and ensnared us as they say, it's me, it's me, it's me. Don't you know how good I make you feel? Don't you know how badly you want me? And to look at it and say, I know it's you, but it's not me. I'm in Jesus. Jesus defines me. So if that's our identity, how should we live then? How should we live? Look at the way that Paul warns you not to be deceived with empty words here. Essentially this attitude of, you know, don't worry about sin. Don't worry about like all this bad stuff out here. Like do whatever feels good to you. Kind of go with the flow. Do your thing. Have your life. Do what's convenient and easy. He warns you against that. He says, those are empty words. He also says, you know, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God in Christ. Which I know like, is raising flags for people. What he means in that, if you look at, and if you look in the Greek verbs. Uh, <laughs> so I just feel like a huge nerd when I say that. Um, <laughs> but that's a hab- habitual doing. Over and over and over again, this is who I am. This is what I do. I am someone who walks in these ways and does these things. And this is just me. There's a real warning for us in that. But for those of us who struggle with these things and wrestle with them, I mean, you have freedom to struggle. But his his warning to all of us is do not be deceived. And his advice is you've got to discern. You've got to weigh things. You've got to measure things. You've got to look at things. You see, Christianity is not just about what you're doing. It's not just about your feelings. But it's also about your mind. It's about your intellect. Paul is saying you've got to think critically about how you walk in the world. You've got to think about the way that you move and the things that are being offered to you. And the opportunities that are there. Because some of them are not good, even though everyone around you is telling them they are good. That to walk in the ways of the world is to put your identity in those things. And one of the things he really puts his finger on here is what we do with our words. That what you do with your words matters. And especially the sort of jokes that we make. What Paul calls filthy talk, right? And this is not against humor. I think I love humor. I think it's creative and fun and engaging. I love to laugh. Uh, Many of you have told me that you can pinpoint where I am on campus based upon my laugh, which is amazing. I feel like I'm a little cat with like a little a bell around my neck when people tell me that. <laughs> Walking around campus laughing at you. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Like, I love to laugh, and I love humor. Uh, but what Paul is saying here is this is a rejection of using humor as a way to play with sin and to try to get in with people through our jokes to the, thing, the stories that we tell. It's essentially saying, you know, you want to laugh? I've got a joke for you. And I've got a story for you that is not appropriate for you know, mixed company. But you will laugh. And you will like me. And I will be in with you. And I will be one person with you. And I will be another person with these other set of people. And Paul is warning us against that. He's warning us to be who we really are. Because it's only when you know who you are that you know who you are not. 
It's only when your identity is firmly rooted in Jesus that you can discern all the other options for identity on this campus and say no to them. Be the workaholic. No. Like, be the person who's driven by sexual sin and desire where it feels like that is life. No. Be the person who always has to succeed, always has to have their stuff together, always has to look good and put together, and never fails publicly in any kind of way. And by God's grace, you can say no. Because when you know who you are, you can say no to all the other stuff and all the other options for identity. Look, there is such a culture of accomplishment at UNC. I don't know if you've picked up on that. I've only been here for like six years. I've started to see it. Um, But you know what's at the center of that culture of accomplishment? At the center of that is not just the things that we do and that we're good at and we aspire to be good at, but it's these things that kind of become tokens of our identity, of what we're worth, and who's worth something, and how we know who is kind of up on the pecking order, right? And Christians are not immune to this. A lot of times Christians come across to people as doing a spiritual resume thing and doing a spiritual course of accomplishment in UNC that is you know, different from the rest of the campus and yet not that different. Like, you've got your service club, well, I've got my Bible study. You're leading such a wild, crazy life partying, well, I'll show you how much self-control and how moral I am by never partying and never letting loose, and I'm going to study, and I'm going to show you that I can beat you at all the other stuff that you're good at, too. I mean, that's how it comes across sometimes to people who are not Christians. And the temptation of Christians at a place like this is to treat God as another box to be checked, another resume item, as following Christ as a way to prove myself. But you must see that Christianity is not offering you another thing to do. That Christianity is offering you a new identity and a way to be in the world and walk through life. That you must see yourself in the light of the gospel. Look, do you struggle with sin? I mean, do you really struggle with sin? Like, do you wrestle with pornography? Do you wrestle with being one person over here and another person over there? I mean, do you believe in Christ here and yet really struggle to feel like God likes me and enjoys me and signs off on me because of who he is? What's the answer to that kind of struggle? What's the answer? Is it trying harder? Is it doing more? Is it working that kind of accomplishment mentality that we have here? I mean, Gary the Pit Preacher gets mocked a ton, and for good reason at times, Because he yells at y'all and holds up a sign that says, Stop sinning, as though, oh man, stop sinning? Gary, I never thought about that. Ah, thank you. (laughs) Light bulbs going off everywhere. Uh, Gary gets mocked for all that stuff, but you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that you should look and try to discern in yourself if you don't have what's the equivalent of a tiny pit preacher in your own heart yelling at you and telling you to try harder and stop sinning as you struggle with sin. As though that was the answer that's ever done any of us any good. As though the answer to sinning is to try to stop sinning. The answer to sinning is Christ and the gospel. That he took all of his wisdom and all of his accomplishments and all of his merit and all the other stuff that you and I would love to put on a resume... And he made those things nothing and nailed them on a cross for the sake of people like you and me so that he could cleanse you of sin and so that he could bring you from darkness into light 
And his life is this fragrant offering, this sacrifice for you. Which means that God is actually pleased with you. And enjoys you, not because of you, but because of Jesus. That when God looks at you, deals with you, if I can put it this way, gets the very scent of you, what he discerns and sees in you is Christ. And he loves it. And he enjoys you for it. And there's rest in that. And peace. And a real freedom from sin to be able to say no to this thing because my identity is in what God says about me. And there's joy in that too. And as we come to the end of Ephesians, I just want to say that so much of the Christian life is living in and discerning yourself in God and in what He says of you. So I want to end with this. I read a news story recently about a guy named Jay Spate. I think I'm saying his last name right. He's from Rockville, Maryland. Uh, and his dad started dabbling in genealogy stuff when he got a little bit older in life. I don't know if you have like any... like. If your parents do this, you've got like a, a grandma or like an eccentric aunt or uncle who's like super into the family tree. And his dad gets really into like family genealogy stuff. But then as he's like pretty deep in, he passes away. And Jay decides to take on the mantle for himself. And he actually throws a little bit of money in. And he gets one of those like uh, mail away DNA tests. And what comes back in this DNA test is pretty surprising he finds out that he is related to the king of Benin, which is a small African country next to Nigeria. And he's like, wow, well, I don't really know what to do with that. <laughs> but he lives near D.C., and it just happened to be that a passing dignitary from Benin was in the area. And so Jay reaches out to this guy and send, like, basically emails him the results of his DNA test. And the guy looks at it, and he connects Jay and... I don't know why he was authorized to do this, but he gives Jay the phone number of the king of Benin. I know, right? <laughs> Can I get that too? Uh, <laughs> and he calls the king, and the king doesn't speak English, so hangs up. So Jay calls back immediately, and he actually talks to the queen of Benin, and she does speak English, and she says, well, you know, here's an email address. Send us what you got, and we'll look at it. He does. Her email back to him is... You are related to the king. We would love to have you come over. We would love to have a party for you and like welcome you over as our, our family member. And so Jay gets on a plane. He flies into the country and he gets at the airport and there's hundreds of people singing and clapping and chanting and stomping. And he gets in a motorcade and drives to the palace where he walks around the palace three times as a... So, like ceremony of return. And once he reaches the palace, he's enthroned to formally become a prince of Benin, which is cool. And he said, you know, people were coming to him and bowing to him, and he's like bowing back, and then they're bowing, and then he's bowing back. It's like one of those like movies where you know, people really don't know how to act when someone bows, which I guess is true. And the queen looks at him while he's doing this, and he says, you don't have to bow. Like, you're the prince. People bow to you. You don't bow to other people. He's given a new set of royal clothes. He's given a new name, which means the child who came back. He goes into like the family lodge. I don't know if there's another way to say this. The family lodge, and he meets all these distant cousins and aunts and uncles who look faintly like him. 
And they're celebrating him and singing over him and rejoicing over him. And he's in these new clothes. And he has a new name. And he's royalty. And then he goes back to Maryland. Do you think when he got back to Maryland that his life was a little bit different? Because of who he was. He had always been a prince. He just didn't know it. But now he goes back and there's so much dignity and honor. And he knows who he really is. Do you know that's you? That God the Almighty has looked down on you and said, You are my son or my daughter. And you are given a new name in that. We don't even know what it is, but one day you will find out. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You are celebrated. You're given a new family. If your old family was bad, if your family is broken, man, join the club. God has a new family for you. It's called the church. And there are many mothers and many fathers and many brothers and sisters there. It's a place of celebration and freedom and rest. And God calls you to walk in that and to live in it and enjoy the freedom that comes with being a child of God. That's my hope and my offer to you tonight in the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to believe how good the gospel is. That it really is good news. That it really is true. That it really does give us a new identity, a new way of living. A new option for people who feel bound by sin and shame and sadness. God, that in you there is hope and freedom and rest and joy. Help us to live in that, to celebrate it, and to help others be set free by it as well. In your name we pray. Amen.